0: It begins with the word hear, and we pointed that out multiple times. But unfortunately, true to form, both for treacherous Judah and for humanity at large, they're quick to speak and slow to hear. Um in a nutshell, that's what we're going to see in these next few verses, especially 6 through 8. Well, in the midst of the trial, the Lord's uh, indictment here has been unsealed uh, against the defendant, Judah. And now she, here in uh, especially verses 6 and 7, now she she t- responds publicly. But she responds out of turn. Um, Judah, she, she hears this indictment that the Lord, that the judge is presenting against her in verses 1 through 5. And then here in, in 6 and 7, she hears all these accusations, and she simply just jumps in and starts her defense. She, she, she wants to cut off the accusations in an attempt to, to sidestep the truth and in an attempt to escape judgment to escape uh, further conviction and condemnation. And ironically, she pleads guilty. She she does plead guilty, but the thing is, her plea is without contrition. Uh, In verse 1, we see that the bailiff and and the the court, they demanded an answer. In verse 3, the judge now demands an answer. And so, so Judah, the defendant, she, she has heard the charges, and she's finally, at this point, finally beginning to realize the trouble that she's in. It's finally hit her a little bit, like, okay, this has gone public, and all of this is weighing down on me, and so now I'm going to answer she decides to answer now. And in her opinion, the best course of action that she can take is to present a guilty plea. But with the attempt to simply placate or appease her God. And I'm using God here with a lowercase g. There's there's two... Two problems with Judah's approach, though. First, she doesn't actually know her God. She doesn't actually know the God to whom she's appealing. And second, her in her appeal, her questions aren't genuine. They, they're grandiose, and they're there just as a show. They're, they're ungenuine questions. And so... We're going to see um, here in the background, it's almost as if you can, hear, you can hear the gavel pounding on the bench with an audible, out of order, out of order. And Micah, he returns to his, to his role as prosecutor here, and he's, he's only able to restrain his tears, which we see in chapter 7, through righteous indignation. He's furious. He is upset. And so, Micah stops this this appeal. He, He interrupts and interjects into this emotionalism, into this diversionary appeal, which is presented by his nation, his family, his friends, his neighbors. He interjects into that the truth that which they subconsciously know. And he presents the truth to them. And so at the end, we will see that finally, as the trial comes to a close, that the judge is going to issue his verdict and his sentence. Uh, We will cover the whole chapter, the remaining portion, but for right now, I just want to read verses 6 through 8 of Micah 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Well, here these three verses, they're made up of five questions and one answer. So as we look at, at this little section here, this passage, I'm going to divide it up in, in just two, two portions. Verses 6 and 7 as the questions and verse 8 as the answer. And toward the, toward the close, we will review uh, verses 9 through 16 under the heading, The Sentence. But I've titled this message, The Response. So, as I began really investigating uh, verses 6 and 7 and considering, well, just who's talking here? I, I actually had a difficult time in discerning who was doing the speaking? And, and I consulted a variety of, of study Bibles and commentaries and, and just different people that's looked at the passage over the years. And I quickly determined that, well, at least I was in good company uh, because I had a variety of opinions. But basically, they boiled down to, to three different options. Even though the, the jury was kind of out d- collectively, Um, as to who should be rightfully credited with these comments. They basically boiled down to, one, the people, or the nation of Judah, was responding. Two, others thought it was Micah that was was speaking here. And then I even saw, I think it was John Gill that believed that this was the words of Balaam who was speaking this in verses 6 and 7, because that was who was mentioned just previous in verse 5 so initially i came to this and i was and i thought that that micah was just he was overcome with guilt just in hearing these these indictments these uh charges pressed against his people that even that micah was overcome with guilt and himself was in a place of desperation and a little sarcasm and hyperbole here as he was grappling with these very real and deep questions. But eventually, I, I walked away from that and I settled upon that the questions posed in verse 6 and 7 were actually being um, presented by, by Judah, by the nation, by the defendant. Um, and, and how we view this is, is important because it changes how we apply it to ourselves. Well, in my opinion, the five questions that are raised here in verses 6 and 7, they can really be summarized as simply a self-justifying guilty plea that's, that are, are asked, that is entered simply as a diversion in order to receive a lighter sentence. That's how I view verses 6 and 7, that these questions are not genuine. I I see these as being asked simply in a way to escape judgment. Well, this interruption in the court proceedings was done so, so that Judah doesn't have to listen anymore to the indictment that's held against her. She just interrupts the judge um, and she's, again, I think she's attempting to divert attention away from her disobedience and towards her willingness to sacrifice. Um, in short, she's attempting to offer a bribe to the judge. She's making an attempt uh, at appeasement towards one whom she thinks is a very petty and vindictive God. And these questions, let's just read them again in verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, These questions are simply a cavalier approach to God that just says, just tell me what you want me to bring. What do you want? And it's that type of attitude, that type of mindset. It's for this very reason that God said what he did through Micah's contemporary Isaiah when he said this, In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. This is why God says that. You see, Judah wasn't coming to the Lord with a recognition that he is God and there is no other. She isn't coming to Him in worship and repentance. She's not coming in humility and with a prescribed offering because she seeks to be obedient to the law. She is still coming to the Lord with an attitude that says, He needs something from her. With an attitude that says, He needs her. Listen, listen. God, the Lord, is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. He is the I Am, the self-existent One. He doesn't need you. He said, look, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world's mine and all it contains. And Judah hadn't gotten that fact across their head. And frankly... You and I forget that. We forget that God doesn't need us. He just wants us. He loves us. Well, another way in which we can determine that this is the attitude in which, that Judah has is in her use of the word bow there in the second half of verse 6. Bow myself before the God on high. Now some of you will know that this word bow is used quite extensively in the Old Testament and it's used in such a way that it means to, to prostrate oneself and it's used simply uh, as, a, as another way of saying worship. That's its extensive use. That's not how it's used here. This bow is used only five times and it means to curve and I get the sense I get the sense of being beaten down or being somewhat oppressed Judah isn't asking her god how he wants her to worship he's not a, she's not asking him how do you want me to show my repentance no, what I take away from this is the idea of asceticism or, or of self-inflicted suffering so that God will be pleased. You know, if I only deny myself certain blessings or pleasures or rights, then, then maybe God will be happy with me. Maybe He'll bless me. Then, essentially, what the speaker is asking is, are you the kind of God that delights in others' suffering? She had the same mindset as the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Because he said this, to see others suffer does one good. Hmm. You know, there's actually a word for that. There's multiple words. Different languages have their own words. In English, we don't actually have a word for it, and so we borrow the German, which is schadenfreude. Okay? Basically, happiness in, in, in... in um, suffering, but regrettably, this is an all too often guilty pleasure in which we delight. We delight to see others suffer. Here's some examples. You're watching a basketball game. One of a player on your team fouls another player. They get a free throw. They miss the free throw, and you say, yeah! Okay. Another one. You're at the store, you're purchasing something, and the cashier makes an error in your favor where you get another $2.39. You catch it, and you walk out the door and say, I got that one. Here's one a little more heavy. That probably doesn't weigh as much on you, but it's still the same thing. Someone's been justly convicted of a crime, sentenced to death. They're at their last moments. They're executed. The family or the victim is in the witnessing. They're, a, they're allowed to, to be there. And as this person takes his last breaths, they cheer and they high-five and they laugh. This is what this is, to take pleasure in another's suffering. But this is totally unbiblical, and it's an anti-God viewpoint. This does not describe the God on high. For God himself says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. That's God's viewpoint. God truly is thrice holy, elevated and lifted up. He is set apart. He is our Father who art in heaven. And when Judah does this, when you or I ask these questions and engage in this type of activity or or thinking, then we are showing our belief that God isn't as big as He says He is, That he isn't as holy as he is. He's just like one of us. You know, our speech actually does reveal what's in our heart. And our language often shows to others how we actually think about a given thing or a given person. And as Judah's asking these questions of her judge, she's revealing what she really thinks about her religion and her God. She's of the mindset that religious ceremony here, this this coming before God, this bringing burnt offerings and calves and rams and oil, this religious ceremony is propitiatory in nature. that, That the practices and the traditions and the observations themselves have the ability to placate or appease, or satisfy. That's what propitiation means. It means to simply satisfy wrath. And that's why we sing that the, the lyrics of that song, The Wrath of God was Satisfied. It's speaking of the term propitiation. Judah is approaching worship with a monetary worldview. For if you look at each one of these in 6 and 7, Each one of the questions here speak of something that's marketable. They speak of quality, of quantity, of singularity. And they each each cater to different consumers. You know, one values high quality, attention to detail, you know, special. Another desires mass-produced convenience. Whatever's easy, whatever's quick, whatever everybody wants, and then there's those that are in the the ultra wealthy super niche markets that look not just for rare, not just for quality but one of a kind or, or historical finds, once in a lifetime opportunities or purchases. yet even even if one gives his best possession, if one gives all of his stuff, if one were even to present his first child as an offering, but fails to show true contrition, but fails to actually bow his knee, to prostrate himself physically, figuratively, but bow himself before his god then it's all vain 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that it's worthless it's meaningless and all these other gifts these sacrifices these offerings they're outside of a man and now the giving of such things they can display a true attitude of the heart but they don't necessitate it they're not equal these two verses, they aren't giving us options to choose from in worship. They're not saying that you can make a decision between a traditional service and a contemporary service, between three-piece suit or a pair of jeans and cowboy boots. It's not between, I'm going to give a turtle dove or my my award-winning, prize-winning bull It's not a decision between that. These two verses simply instruct us as to how we think and and how or what we ought to think about God and who He is. That's what they're pointing us to. Who is God? Who is God? What kind of God is this? He asks that question here at the end. Who who is a God like you at the end of chapter 7? Verses 6 and 7 reveal to us the universal problem. That man is accountable before God. And these are the questions that a person asks when either the gravity of his situation or... Or rather, the heinousness of his sin and the righteousness of God dawns on him. You see, it depends on how these questions are asked. Because to the arrogant, to those who simply are seeking to evade punishment, to the arrogant, this question demands, what do you want, God? What do you want? But to the penitent the question is oh what shall i do to be saved Amen. do you see the difference Amen. but even, even in the superficial questions that are posed by arrogant and fearful man even there in them is the recognition that he's in trouble he's in trouble and so he breaks it down in order to, to try and understand what makes God tick. He tries to, to present these questions just like the Pharisees presented questions to Christ in order to test Him. In order to test Him. Just like Satan did in the, in the, in the temptations in the desert. He asks questions like this do you, do you want a regular offering for my flocks and herds? Here? You, you, do you want a regular offering? You want me to tithe something to you? That, that's what it is, right? You, you want an annual fee? How about we set up a subscription deal? Here, you want a monthly payment? Uh, you want interest? Okay. What do you want? Now, maybe, maybe you're interested in money here. Do you want lots of goods to trade? You, you want to buy in bulk? Are we just selling wholesale here? You want, you want lots of goods. Do you deal only in large bills? You don't want any do- dollars. You want hundreds. Maybe you just take cashier's checks. What, what, what is it? Is it medicine? You want pharmaceuticals? You, do you want alcohol? Is it health products that you're into? What about big oil? What is it, God? What is it? What do you want? Or maybe, yeah, do you, do you take pleasure in watching other people suffer? Are you, are you sadistic? Is, is that what it is? Is it, is it the exercise of your power that floats your boat? Do you, do you just want me to be a slave and, and not be able to have any rights over my family and my children? What is it? What do you want? Looking at verse 7 specifically we see that an unbelieving heart, it tends to separate physical actions and spiritual sin. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Now this is most commonly presented in the scriptures in the form of Gnosticism that that basically denies the connection between the two, between body and spirit, that you can just do whatever you want in the body and it has no... Ramifications on your spirit, and vice versa. But there's actually another way in which this shows up, and it shows up in this statement that says, I can't help it, I was born that way. Really? Really? You see, there actually is a connection between our physical actions and the health of our soul, there is a connection. And these questions are very personal. Did you catch that? I, myself, my. And this simply verifies what we already know inside of us deep down somewhere. That we are all accountable by, for himself to God. Right. I, myself, and mine. No one of us can stand in the place for another. We are each accountable to God. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sin, sons. Nor shall the sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall die for his own sin. So why then is this question about child sacrifice raised. Because that's what Molech demands. Molech demands a child sacrifice. Baal takes pleasure in this. Chemosh desires it. He enjoys it. Every other god but Jehovah hates children. Everyone. Now, why do you think that Abraham didn't balk at the command to take Isaac up to that mountain and to sacrifice him? That's what the gods demanded. He had faith, yes. It says he believed that that he would be raised up again. Maybe he couldn't figure out the things, how they were going to work. God said this, and this is what I've known about gods all my life, is that they want children. What is it that the Egyptians experienced, that the Israelites witnessed in the, in the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. God was giving them over to their own sins. Giving them over to their gods, to their idols. You're going to worship a god like this? This is what this god does. He takes the life of children. So the question is asked here: God, are you are you now calling your loan? Did your investment just just not pay off from your people, and, and now you're you're going to demand restitution? Is that what you're doing here? Are you now going to require our firstborn? You let them go in Egypt, but are you calling your loan now? Again, this is a complete mischaracterization and misunderstanding of who God is. And I think that we can say that this is the greatest and most common misconception about the person of God. Almighty God never requires his children, or, or, or man to offer his children as expiation of sin. He's never required that. And I'm going to say a bold statement here, but this is the central theme of the Bible. Because the greatest act in all of history centers around the unsolicited sacrifice of God's only begotten Son unto death to expiate your sin and to make propitiation for our sins. You get that? That is the the central act, the greatest act in all of history to prove that God doesn't demand your children. Talk about a turn of events, folks. It's flipped it on its head. People expect their gods to demand terrible sacrifices from them. Horrible things. Great sacrifices. But no one ever expected or imagined God would make such a terrible sacrifice for you. No one. And yet, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that that whoever believes in Him will not perish. It's not not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave Himself up for us. You know, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. No, He didn't send Him to condemn us but so that we might be saved through Him. Well, at this point in the interruption in the court, in the trial, Micah has had enough. What do you mean, God? You think God is demanding your child? No! I'm going to stop you right there. You've lost it. You don't know who you're talking to. Micah just stops and he interrupts this, these ridiculous questions. He can't stand to hear any more nonsense from his family. He can't take any more of this self-righteous egotism and the maligning of God's character. So he stands up, if, if you were, and he shouts, He has told you, oh man, what is good. He's already told you. In fact, he he might say, let me just instruct you a little bit about this God to whom you are accountable. Let me tell you a little bit about Him. He's told you. He has told you. God alone. God as singular. He has told you. He is authoritative, God as authoritative, God as ruler, God as creator, God as the one who gets the ability to define things, God as Lord. He has told you. He has told you. It's explicit. It's not hidden. It's out there. It's audible. You've heard it. You've seen it. He's told you. It's a revealed will. He has told you. It's a previously set standard. It's not something new. It's the same thing. He's told you. And you guess what? A verbal standard is actually enough. He's told you. Your kids ever get that one? Well, I didn't remember a verbal standard is actually enough. A one time verbal standard is actually enough. But God has done way more than that. He said through different individuals at different times, in different ways, different language, different means. He's done it again and again and again. And if that weren't enough, He sent the word in flesh for men to see, to hear, to experience. There's no excuse for disobedience. There's no excuse for unbelief. There's no excuse for any more questioning because He has told you. He has told you. See, it's very personal now, isn't it? He's told you. Judah? Yeah, He's told you, Judah. But it's not just for Judah in the 700s B.C. It's for you. Because He's told you what is good. And guess what isn't good? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none good but God alone. They've all turned aside. You can't claim ignorance. You can't brush off the responsibility. You can't say that it just doesn't apply to you. He's told you. Told you. So Micah, very sorrowfully but indignantly, reminds his family, his friends, and his neighbors that they're human. They're finite. They're dust. Oh man. They're dust. And as human, our days are numbered. They're numbered. Because it's appointed unto men to die once. And after this, the judgment. She's in a trial. She's being judged. After this, the judgment. But though he is rightfully upset, Judah doesn't stop there. He tells him yet again what the Lord requires. And this this is merciful, even though he's angry. To do justice, to love kindness to walk humbly with your God. And this verse reminds us of who God is and how we ought to think about Him. It's a rereading or a summation or paraphrase of the law. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. And these three aspects, they, they make up the core, the central tenets of the law, the To do this and you will live. This is what is good. This is what God wants. You ever ask yourself, what's God's will? I ask that all the time. God, what's your will? What's good? What's the best decision here? Well, this is good. This is the best. This is God's will. This is what God wants. And not just what He likes, but what God wants requires, what God requires of you. It's not simply a matter of taste. We're not talking about preference here. We're not talking about something that He just kind of likes. No, this is a standard that's unalterable. It's mandatory. It's without exception. He hath told you, O man, what is good. He has showed thee, He's told thee. You want to know what God requires? You want to know what God likes? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. God's answer is very simple His requirements are straightforward, they're not confusing albeit frightfully impossible. This is God's answer to the problem, though. Verse 8. This is what being right with God looks like. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. That's God's answer to the problem. Study this verse, and it will lead you to the answer. The answer to how we ought to worship is really very simple. And the one true God isn't malicious. He doesn't require menial servitude. And He doesn't take pleasure in your suffering. He doesn't delight in child sacrifices. So, what exactly then does it mean to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? What does it mean? We're going to explore that in just a moment, but I want to make a side comment first Micah six verse eight is one of those recognizable, quotable Old Testament verses that's hidden away in some obscure passage you've heard it we've seen it on t-shirts we have it we have it again it's blessed us here on our on our congregational calendar that we get to consider this, but we don't consider it lightly. And it's quite tempting though for us to to do this where we simply pluck out a verse, something that sounds good, sounds cool, um, and, and yet make inappropriate applications. In other words, there can actually be a danger in the ability to quote the Bible. And we've probably all done this where we pull out some well-known verse from our minds and we attempt to apply that in relevance to our current situation or problem or plight. Sometimes we do it accurately, but sometimes we don't. And when we don't, even though the given scripture may sound good, it may brief well, well, we're actually showing our ignorance of the Word of God because in that case, the Scripture which we are inappropriately applying to our context, we're mishandling the Word of God. And I know that I've been guilty of this. So let's be careful. What Micah is calling for here is not for men to be courageous in leading their families, even though they ought to be. That's not what he's calling for here. He isn't saying to Judah that she ought to disregard the sacrificial system because God doesn't need it, because God clearly demanded it. No, Micah is dealing with the very personal issue of the dealing with the knowledge of sin and the righteousness of God. And at this point, many have missed the boat. Loving your family, sacrificing and providing for them is not the same thing as worshiping God. Now, you can't worship God and fail to love your family and sacrifice for them. But you can sacrifice and love your family without worshiping God. They're not equal. It's not the same thing as obeying the gospel. It's only the keeping of of the second half of God's law. Or at best, it flows out of keeping the first. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness may be the weightier provisions of the law. They may be, very well be the weightier provisions of the law, as Christ said. But they still aren't the means whereby man is justified. So let's not hide behind this injunction and argue that it's the same thing, because it isn't. It isn't. And we're going to look at more of this in in chapter 7. But it was Jesus who said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let's go back to our question then. What does this mean to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? Well, Matthew Henry had an accurate thought on this when he said, The good which God requires of us is not the paying of a price for the pardon of sin and acceptance with God, but the doing, excuse me, but doing the duty which is the condition of our interest in the pardon purchased. Did you catch the difference there? That which God requires, the good, that which God requires is not the paying of a price in order to receive a pardon. That's not the good God requires. The good that God requires is simply doing the duty out of of our interest, our thankfulness, our gratitude, our interest in the pardon that we've received. The doing of justice, the loving of kindness, the walking humbly is not in any way meritorious. It's simply our duty. It's our duty. It's God's requirement. What does the Lord require of you? It's the Lord's requirement. And here in verse 8, we have two requirements presented. Actions and heart. So why does Micah choose these three specifically? Justice, mercy, humility. Humility. Well, those are the three areas in which Judah's gone terribly wrong. Those are the arenas in which um, this, this, really any nation under judgment will be exposed. She's going to be exposed in those three areas. And looking back to, to chapters 2 and to 3, you know, and thinking about the scheming of iniquity and walking haughtily and stealing property, just abuse and oppression. Looking forward to to verses 9 through 16 here, these are the core arenas in which Judas played the harlot. In these areas, she's justly condemned and being judged. When Micah speaks of of doing justice, he's referring to that oppression of the poor of which he spoke earlier in the book. He's concerned with the corrupt leadership, with, with... with those whom he addressed in chapter 3 he he spells it out again here in verse 11 with wicked scales and deceptive weights ultimately in regards to this doing of justice he's looking forward to that to that king of kings who's going to come and restore justice that peace that that era of finally he is everyone is going to come to him for judgment in chapter 4 when he says Love, kindness. Love, kindness. He's juxtaposing duty with their behavior that they've already shown in chapter 3 where it said that the rulers loved evil. Love, kindness. Don't love evil. He is explicitly going back to that. And he describes their, their behavior in verse 12 here. As being full of violence. Love kindness, not violence. When Micah talks about walking humbly, again, he's recalling that that arrogant scheming of iniquity, the planning, the plotting. And then in verse 15, he shows that they, or excuse me, 16, he shows that they are actually walking after their fathers. Omri, Ahab, you don't want those guys as your dad. Those, that's their way of life. That's their walk. Well, the doing of justice is an outworking of our duty towards God and our fellow man. That's the doing of justice. It's how it comes out. The loving of of kindness or mercy, that's our internal disposition towards God and our fellow man. And the walking humbly is is the moment-by-moment reality of our existence. Walking with God. This encompasses both, both outward duty and inward disposition. Do and walk are both actions. Do can be seen in single events. You do this. You do this one thing. But walk is more of a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's how you are known. Love, on the other hand, is an expression of that indicates one's heart. It's about desire. And it goes beyond a t-shirt. It goes beyond a bumper sticker that says, be kind. And it dives to the heart of the matter here. For one can, can be kind to simply avoid confrontation. One can be kind to just not upset the beast. Let's just not get him angry. One can be kind to simply avoid punishment. But loving kindness is something altogether different. So we have then two requirements of God. Duty and intent. Actions. Attitude. Doing and loving. So when one humbly walks with his God, we have the result of that union between the two requirements. This is where the doing and the loving, where they join hands, where they walk together. And notice that the text doesn't say walk humbly with your fellow man. It says walk humbly with your God. And what's the difference? Well, the difference is of extreme importance because you can ask the question, are you a servant of God or are you simply a philanthropist? Which one is it? Now, Christians can and ought to be involved in philanthropy, in humanitarian aid, and in, in politics, and hospitality. But your efforts in these areas, your feelings in these areas, your good intentions here, that alone will not suffice. That's not going to do anything with your standing before God. No, walking humbly with God is having a relationship with Him. And one of the most amazing and explicit examples of this in the Scriptures is regarding the witness of of Enoch found in Genesis 5. Enoch walked with God. Look it up. And then we have his testimony in Jude and what he felt and what he thought and what he prophesied as to what God thought about man's evil actions, his ungodly ways. Consider that when you think about what it means to walk with God. Just consider Enoch and his witness and his testimony. So what's the summation of these two requirements? Well, That's what Jesus was asked. Teacher, what's the great commandment of the law? What's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. What's Micah teaching us? He's teaching us here in 6.8 that everything in the law and the prophets depends on the keeping of this injunction. This is the keystone. This is the cornerstone, the central tenet, and we can't even keep that. You want to boil everything down to one thing? We can't even keep that one thing that the god of the jews the god of the gentiles is the same god his demands are the same his word is the same his requirements are the same jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever god hasn't changed he is the son of david he's heir to the throne he is the lord of david and he is worthy of worship he is com- he has completely and fully kept every aspect of the law, both passively and actively in his obedience and in his heart intent. Jesus Christ has fulfilled this verse. Micah 6 verse 8 is not the gospel. It's the summation of the law. The law points us to the gospel. And the law points us to Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf, to be that propitiation, to make expiation. Let's read now the remainder of the chapter. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness, and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat. But you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed and in their devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction, and your inhabitants for derision, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Well, verse 8 has stopped the interruption and turned the conversation back to its original trajectory. Verses 9 through 16 is the continuation of the indictment. It's, it's returned now back to how the trial ought to have proceeded. And it reveals the just reasons for the indictment. It records the judge's conviction and his sentence. And this is the consequence of an unresolved problem. Micah, as bailiff, again, he calls for silence with a warning to those who would hear the judge. The voice of the Lord will call to the city. Now, y'all be quiet and listen up, he says. The Lord is calling here, and he's reminding them that they are under the law and that every mouth shall be stopped. You are under the law here. You're in a court of law. Be quiet and listen. Micah returns to Solomon's conclusion that man ought to fear God and and to keep his commandments because this is man's entire duty. And again, that there is an appointed time for everything under heaven. He says, who has appointed its time? God has appointed its time, and He has appointed a time for judgment, and it's now. Remember, these words came from the wisest and the wealthiest man in history. There is a time for everything. Fear God and keep His commandments. And so the judge's words in the trial, and they close the chapter... He completes the reading of the indictment there in verses 9 through 11. And then in verse 12 comes the conviction, guilty. Guilty. In 13 through 16, reveal the sentencing. I'm not going to go into depth on these verses, but simply provide an overview and hopefully some application for us. But we've already seen that the three tenets of the law were ignored. And they were broken by Judah. Her injustice, her partiality, her wickedness is what brought about her guilt. No, it it brought about her pending collapse, and then it showed her guilt. And, And these are the very things which mark... These things mark a condemned nation, a condemned organization... A condemned family. Whenever we see legalized theft, when we see mandated injustice, when we see intentional partiality, we are witnessing God's judgment. This is God giving over an entity into its sins. We read about it again and again from Romans 1. And two other earmarkers for this condemnation are found there in verse 12. Increased violence and continual propagation of lies. That's two other earmarkers. But notice here there's a connection between wickedness and money. or Primarily the love of money or greed. So much so that legal cheating is going on here. And remember that Jesus said, No man can serve two masters. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in mammon. It's impossible. And these closing verses of Micah chapter 6, they're not just reminiscent of, but they are literally the curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28. That God had Moses deliver and speak, I think, to to Mount Ebal. Ebal as the people were entering into the, to the promised land. These are the curses. Verbatim. And they're experiencing it. And this, again, just shows us that God's standards have not changed. It's, and I told you so, His Word hasn't changed. And this Word, this reality that's described here, it's had multiple fulfillments throughout history. We've seen it again and again. Notice the following health, increased sickness, illness, pestilence. Health is a curse here. Hunger, there's been the curse of hunger with food shortages, famine, lack of preservatives such as salt or sugar, mold, mildew growth, flock or herd disease, pests, cursed ground. There's decreased yields in harvest. The seed's not sprouting. There's drought. There's floods. There's other natural disasters. There's late frost, early frost. There's lack of pollinators. There's premature fruit drop. There's vain labor. You ever had weather mess up your plans? (laughs) Too windy, too rainy, too cold, too hot. Uncooperative weather, broken tools. You go to do something and, pff, well, now I've got to go buy another one or I've got to fix this thing. Uncooperative weather, broken tools, lack of workers. You've got everything, but nobody's there to do it. Theft. Theft. And then there's overt idolatry. Omri and Ahab, state-sponsored idolatry. Morality is reversed. Good is evil and evil is good. Well, this is the removal of God's blessing here. It's the removal of His presence, the removal of His glory, the Ichabod. And the people of Judah may have forgotten their father's sins, Omri and Ahab, but God hasn't forgotten. And they're still accountable because they're following in their footsteps. He is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generations. That's literally happening right here. The sentence, well, we see it in 16, is destruction. It's derision. It's reproach. Social and economic collapse. Scorn, mockery, shame, public indecency. You'll bear it. That's what happened when they went into captivity. All the above. They were made a mockery of. They walked out naked. Destroyed. So the conclusion, men and brethren, what shall we do? Because we're justly condemned, by the way. We're justly condemned. Well, there were people that asked that question. Men and brethren... What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. You want to be saved from this perverse generation? Place your trust in the name and in the person of Jesus Christ. It was his name which was derided, it was his life which was destroyed. And he was fully exposed, bearing your reproach. Now, a legal pardon here has just been extended. A legal pardon has been extended, and it's still available. You may have questions. That's okay. Jesus Christ has answers, He is God's response to your problem what is your response glenn would you close this in prayer